You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is the wrap-up teaching for week 9, covering Numbers chapters 32 through 36. We're going to conclude the, ch- the book of Numbers today, and I want to again say we made it. Um, congratulations to finishing the book of Numbers. If you're like me, however, this seems like just the beginning. Um, We journeyed with the nation of Israel over the course of the last 10 weeks through many ups and downs, and now they truly are on the brink of seeing God's promises fulfilled in the land that he is giving them. These final chapters serve as a reflection over the past 40 years, but also as a focus on moving forward to what lies ahead. Last week's text answered the question that Aaron gave us, how then should the people live? And this week we will answer the question, where should they live? These final five chapters are all about the land. I don't know if you caught that theme in there. Uh, The land that was described all the way back in God's covenant with Abraham, the land that God told Moses about, and the land where the nation of Israel will finally find rest. They are so close. Um, As the book of Numbers comes to a close, we can see the theme of preparation once again being at the forefront of our minds. In the first couple chapters, in the opening chapters of Numbers, we were all about setting up the camp and preparing to move. Now in these final chapters, this next generation is preparing to enter. So let's dive in. Uh, The text this week, as we talked about, begins with a rather interesting part of the narrative. The old generation, other than a few guys, um, have died in the wilderness, and the next generation is seemingly steps away from entering the land. Uh, We read multiple times, I don't know if you caught this, um, in these five chapters that Moses and the people are on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Again, they're so close. Um, However, This wasn't quite close enough for everyone. Um, In chapter 32, like we talked about, we learned about a couple of tribes that decide that the land they were standing on east of the Jordan looks good in their eyes and suitable for their livestock. Um, I don't know if you said this already, but the NIV calls these the Transjordan tribes. So if I refer to them as that, that's what that means. Um, The Reubenites, the Gadites, and later half of the tribe of Manasseh. So they say to Moses, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Uh, Like we talked about earlier in our discussion, this decision to settle outside of the promised land is really neither praised nor condemned in the text explicitly. We kind of have to read between the lines here a little bit. Um, It is pretty ambiguous. Um, We can see from the very beginning, though, that there is some similar language here to Adam and Eve in the garden, we didn't really talk about that. Um, but when they see something that is good and they desire it. Um, so the tribes ask Moses if they can have the land. And Moses gets angry with this request. Uh, he challenges them for their selfish desire uh, for comfort. He says, why are you gonna have, these other guys are gonna go fight and you're gonna stay here. I kind of paraphrase that a little bit. Um, he fears that their decision will impact the rest of their people and lead the nation to disobedience once again. Uh, He also fears that the Lord's anger, like we said, would burn against them if they turn away from following him. So the two tribes come up with a counteroffer. They say they will take the possession only um, after they go and help their brothers 
conquer Canaan. So like we said, did they have a change of heart? Uh, we don't know exactly, but we do know that Moses accepts their offer. So it would appear that the solution is sufficient and acceptable. Um, we also find out later, like we said, that these, these tribes do end up holding their end of the bargain. Joshua blesses them for their faithfulness as they go back. Um, but the division of the Jordan between them and the rest of their brothers does have some negative impacts on them throughout their history. Uh, things like they were just simply further. We just talked about where the tabernacle was kind of sent in, in the promised land. Well, they were going to be farther from that. They're going to be farther from the temple once that is built. And uh, they are the first to fall to the Assyrians in 2 Kings. Um, they are the first that that land is conquered um, and they go into exile. So, yeah, we don't, we don't know exactly. Um, but there are some clues on, to both sides. So that brings us to the end of chapter 32. Uh, next, in chapter 33, we have what I was calling a travel log of the Israelites' journey in the wilderness. Uh, Moses recounts the various places and events that took place. Again, I said it's not exactly an exhaustive list. Uh, we don't know maybe exactly why he put the ones that he did, and maybe he left out some other ones. Uh, but we do know, again, that this is here for a reason, which we kind of already talked about. Um, so why is it here? What can we learn from it? Um, I think Molly said this, but it shows God's faithfulness in the wilderness. Uh, look at all the places that the people went and how God provided for them thus far. Uh, yes, God's judgment was definitely felt, and we know that that was there, um, but so was his mercy and care for his people. It also shows the next generation where they've been, like we talked about, and reminds them of both their disobedience um, of the first generation and obstacles that they've overcome. So this journey in the wilderness can serve as a teaching tool for generations to come, us as well. Um, third, the travel log gives us a historical list. It just shows us that these are real people going to real places. And lastly, it shows God is true to his promises. He's still bringing them to the promised land. So this travelogue serves as a reminder of the wanderings in the wilderness, yet also as a reminder of who God is and what he has done. So let's apply this to us for a second, very similar to what Molly said. Um, how do we remember God's faithfulness and work in our lives? This might look different for everyone, um, but I do encourage you to take some time to think about it. How can you remember? Um, how can you stop what you're doing and remember what God is doing? Um, beginning in his word and being in his word is one of the best places to start. Um, and then telling others about how he is at work and what he's doing and where you see him is another way to remember. Our family at our house has a paper on our refrigerator that says, where did you see God today? And we use this space to recount God's faithfulness in the big things, but also the everyday things. Uh, we've taught our daughters, who are, who are little, um, how to look for God stories throughout their day and go and write them on the paper. And then once that paper gets filled up, I put it into a folder. I keep it so we can pull it out later down the road and see all that God is faithful in. Um, when my daughter came to Christ, it's on the big, I'm going to cry, but it's, it's on the paper. And so we get to see that again and again, which is really cool. Um, so moving on, the rest of chapter 33 and the final three chapters serve as more commands and laws about the land. Uh, we are given instructions about who will live in the land and what to do with the inhabitants there currently, where the land will be, uh, the boundaries, who will distribute the land and how, information on specific cities in the land, and then lastly more about the inheritance um, as they conclude with Zelophehad's daughters. 
So we learn at the end of chapter 33, we didn't get a, a great chance to talk about this, but that God wants the Israelites to completely drive out the people living in the land and destroy all that goes with them, including their carved images and the idols. Um, in Deuteronomy, it actually says, God says, do not leave alive anything that breathes. So um, he is leaving no room for his people to be pulled in the wrong direction. Uh, here, we find a very clear command as well as a warning. Um, and then if you do follow the nation of Israel further through the Old Testament, um, you're going to see that they do fall short of this command, and there are serious consequences that follow. Chapter 34 then gives us some boundaries and appoints some leaders to help distribute the land. And then within these boundaries, uh, in chapter 35, we are given some specific information on these cities, uh, those that we talked about earlier, for Levites and those that serve as a refuge. So the Levitical cities are to be scattered among the people. Because they are scattered, the Levites become God's representatives among the land, throughout the land. Um, and doesn't this sound like us? The Levites help remind people about God's law, and perhaps even, there was some information on this, that they perhaps even raised some of the sacrificial animals in those pasture lands that are around them. Um, they were very specific in, we don't know, it doesn't say that in the word, but it does say these pasture lands were surrounding these cities. So the um, six of these Levitical cities then were to be called cities of refuge. And so that we're going to talk about that here next. So the cities of refuge really point us, like we talked about earlier, to God's holiness, uh, his heart for his people, and just how much he really values life. Uh, we learn here the purpose and the function of the cities are to offer protection for the accused, a safe place to stay if you accidentally kill someone, and then atonement through the death of the high priest. Also described here is the difference between murder, which is killing with intent, and manslaughter, which is killing without intent, and why atonement is necessary. There is a difference between these two acts. However, both murder and manslaughter incur blood guilt and pollute the land. Therefore, they both require atonement. Unatoned blood would defile the land, which serves as a barrier to dwelling with a holy God. So to atone for the accidental bloodshed, God graciously gives the manslayer a place to live um, until the death of the high priest. And only the death of the high priest, like we talked about, allows that person to go free and safely return to their land. Uh, so the death of one saves many. God provides a refuge in the midst of chaos. So this brings us to the conclusion of Numbers. The nation of Israel started out living in obedience, but then we quickly saw their demise in the wilderness. They lived in fear of man and misplaced their trust and belief. They changed in appearance, however, as the old generation died and the new generation rose. The new generation gave us a glimmer of hope, and we saw a newfound faith and obedience. Even in these chapters, it says a lot of God said to do this, and then they do it in these final chapters. So, like I said earlier, the Israelites are now on the brink of entering the promised land. And this is how the book ends. <laughs> these concluding chapters leave us reflecting on what God has done, yet longing for what's to come. You can kind of think of it as the Israelites are on this ridge line, right? The wilderness is not the end of their story. Yes, they can look back to where they've come from, but they can also look forward toward the finish line. And ladies, that goes for us too. The wilderness is not the end of our story. 
This is not our permanent home. Um, if you have placed your trust in Christ, you too will get to experience a promised land. We've been saying this all semester, but a new and better promised land. This one, though, is so much better than we could ever imagine. The promised land for the Israelites had boundaries. We were given those boundaries. However, God's kingdom will be boundless. The first promised land was temporary. Ours will be eternal, where we can live forever with our God. God dwelled with his people there with hindered access, whereas we will be given full access to the Father. And in their promised land, the Israelites were still susceptible to sin, where ours will be perfect. And they had to fight for and conquer their land. Ours has already been won and bought for us. So I'm going to finish without crying. I'm going to finish by reading the passage um, that I had you guys look up in your homework um, this week. And that is from Revelation 21. So take some time to reflect on these words as I read them. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. So ladies, my charge to you is this. Um, Let us live in such a way that we remember what God has done while looking forward to what is yet to come. Are these truths reflected in our everyday lives? Um, How do we live in a way that shows our attitude of praise for the gifts we've been given and the excitement and anticipation of our new home where we will dwell with the Lord forever? Like Tony asked um, last Sunday, how do we live ready? So just encourage you to take a little bit of time to think about that this week.